In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear faithful and friends, as we continue our Lenten sermons, after having considered two weeks ago the second pillar of Lent, prayer, but in its public form, the liturgy, and then a few weeks back, the first pillar of Lent, fasting, I'd like to invite you today to consider the last pillar, almsgiving. As we continue our novena in preparation for the Feast of St. Joseph, with a special focus this year on church architecture in commemoration for the anniversary of the dedication of our church, I have the difficult mission of joining together almsgiving and architectural Christian symbolism. Yesterday, if you remember, Canon Sequera gave some general explanation about the building itself, the church. And today our focus will be on the church, of course, but as temple, as place of worship, where the divine abases itself to meet his creation, and where creation, elevated by grace, meets his creator, where the church building communicates to all the realities of the heavenly Jerusalem to come. So to trace back the origin of our Christian architecture, churches, chapels, shrines, basilicas, one has to go all the way back to Moses, when asked by Yahweh, God, to build his tabernacle in the desert, where he could encounter him there. Moses obeys. He builds him a tabernacle. That is literally a tent, a movable tent, tent-like sanctuary. A tabernacle in the wilderness, dwelling tent of God. In its simple form at first, a rectangular court, ornate with curtains of fine and twisted linen, marking the separation, the hierarchic separation between the sacred and the profane. Later, if you remember, King David will be entrusted with the mission to build another temple, but this time unmovable and magnificent. David fulfills part of his mission by collecting money and materials, but the largest and final part of the work will fall under the responsibility of his son, King Solomon, almost a century before Christ. That temple containing on the east part the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, symbol of Christ. One of the reasons why, of course, our churches normally also face East, the east, where the sun rises, where Christ is raised with glory in the hands of the priest at Mass. The Ark of the Covenant was also known as the seat of mercy and the source of justice, prefiguring the coming of Christ as judge, a merciful judge, and Christ as ruler, a just lawmaker. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Behold the tabernacle of God. Yes, behold the tabernacle of God. As guests of the house of God, we cannot present ourselves before God with empty hands. A sacrifice has to be offered. An offering must be presented so as to appease God's justice and bring upon our heads his infinite mercy. Redeem thou thy sins with alms, says Prophet Daniel. And St. Paul, while admonishing his Hebrew brethren, do not forget to do good and to impart, for by such sacrifices God's favor is obtained. 
One cannot, of course, disconnect these two realities of the temple, house of God on one side, and the necessity of a sacrifice, almsgiving, and offering. And the very stones of this building are silent witnesses of the sacrifices and offerings of so many generations. And we, as living stones, continue to perpetuate the same tradition, continue to hold firm the same doctrine. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 10. The first offering is, of course, the offering of one's own heart, soul, body, and mind, renewed every day by the priest when lifting the patent, this golden plate, holding the unconsecrated host. When he says, Accept, O Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, this unspotted host, which I, thy unworthy servant, offer unto thee, my living and true God, for my innumerable sins, offenses, and negligences, and for all here present, as also for all faithful Christians, both living and dead, that it may avail both me and them for salvation unto life everlasting. Almsgiving implies the notion of mercy and pity, according to the Greek word itself, elemosune, and the cruciform shape of many of our churches remind us of the first and most perfect act of mercy towards humankind. The Catechism reminds us that church buildings are not simply gathering places, but signify and make visible the church living in this place, the dwelling of God with men reconciled and united in Christ. As we enter the church and lustrate ourselves, this liturgical term, lustration, same when the priest goes down the aisle at the beginning of the high mass to sprinkle holy water on the faithful, so that same lustration when we enter church, when we wash, literally wash ourselves, purify ourselves with holy water, making the sign of the cross, we enter already in the realm of the mystery of our redemption and present ourselves as living offering, living alms, because we are obliged in strict justice to give back to God what belongs to Him and Him alone, that is, our whole self, everything that I am and everything that I have. Once we understand the profound theology and Christology of the sacred temples, built after so many sacrifices over so many centuries, we understand the necessity and obligation to continue to provide for the needs of the church. reason why the church has made it a commandment, precept of the church, to provide for the needs of the church. Today's situation, with no support or subsidies from the state, no financial support from the archdiocese either, today's situation is in many ways very similar to the first ages of Christianity, as the only source of church revenue is from the generosity of viewer offerings. The origin of tithing, for instance, reaches back to unknown antiquity. We have the example of Abraham giving to the high priest Melchizedek. We also have the example of Moses making it an obligation for his people to benefit the Levites, who were the ministers of the tabernacle and ministers of the temple. Later, laws were established to provide for the support of the sacred ministers as administrators of these sacred places. And early writers speak of it as 
I quote, a divine ordinance and an obligation of conscience. So mercy and love of almsgiving are works that God loves. Mercy and love of almsgiving are works that God loves, observes St. Gregory of Nyssa. They literally deify those who practice them and imprint upon them the likeness of the good so that they become the image of the divine being. And here St. Gregory introduces a second aspect of almsgiving, not so much out of justice, as we just mentioned, but now out of charity. And St. Thomas Aquinas explains that mercy being an effect of charity, it follows that almsgiving is an act of charity through the medium of mercy. And so what should be the characteristics of our almsgiving in its dimension, not so much as justice, of justice, but its dimension of charity? According to a good Catholic encyclopedia, it should be discreet, discreet in the sense of prudent, wise, as St. Benedict likes to use this term, discreet, again in its uh, specific sense, as prudence, wisdom. So our almsgiving should be discreet, reaching deserving individuals or families. It should also be prompt and therefore opportune at the right time, secret and humble, cheerful and abundant. Aside from the material supports one has to give out of charity to his neighbor, one can certainly during this holy season also give more of his time or his attention to his duties, obligations, to his family, friends, relatives, co-workers, and so on. Putting aside all selfish and prideful attachments to give oneself more and more. And of course, my dear faithful, what better gift than the gift of oneself? And entering our beautiful church, one cannot but be struck at the side of this crucifix standing up high on the altar, or also this massive, beautiful crucifix just directly on the left side by the vestibule, hanging on the wood of the cross, Christ. Christ with his arm wide open. He did not restrict his generosity, as we have seen in Jansenist architecture or art where these crucifix were uh, presenting our Lord with his arms very close to each other as if Christ was limiting his mercy to just a few, which of course is a heresy. His infinite mercy expands to all. And so Christ with his open arms, on the contrary, I'm sorry, hanging on the wood of the cross, Christ with his arms wide open, did not restrict his generosity, but on the contrary, at the most cruel and violent moment of the destruction, the annihilation of his very individuality, destruction of his very self by his executioners, Christ decided from all eternity to keep his arms wide open in the perfect act of detachment from self, an unconditional act of love and self-giving. As he continue, will continue to do on the day, the glorious day of his resurrection. And so, my dear faithful, while entering the church, while signing yourself with the sign of the cross, with holy water, while embracing, kissing you, the cross hanging on your rosary, let us ask for the grace to have that same generosity and zeal for souls that gave to mankind so many holy souls, putting aside for a moment all selfish desires and pitted divisions among ourselves,
to be all united under the victorious banner of the Holy Cross. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.